excellent. I love this spot, I have to tell you. <laughs> Me too. It's so good. The amount of times I come up here. Yeah. Um, I come. Up, I often come up here in um, winter. And Me too. I come up with like a mince pie and a flask. Yeah. And I just sit here and it's so quiet. It's just like I know. And today, the last of the swallows are just coursing over the grass, feeding before they head south. Oh yeah. So beautiful. There's not many around. What's special about this bench that we're sitting on? It's the location on this secret path and the view that it affords. And quite honestly, Sarah, I don't think many people know about it. But this side of Kinder is a spectacular area. Um, I'm sure you'll ask me a bit more about Kinder, but one of the things I like about it, in fact love about it, is that it's like a castle with ramparts and the castellated tops represent all the crags around it, and it's unlike any other hill in Britain. It does have that real appeal, I think, and that's why I think people return here time and time again. I think that's quite likely, that um, <clears throat> achieving the crest is all very well, and you look out and you see great views on a good winter's day or a summer's day, but when you look inland across the plateau, it still rings um, doubt and sometimes fear of, of possibly going out there because all the navigational points that are, are common to your visibility are gone. It's a very subtle um, dome of, uh, of peat and heather and tributaries of water and it doesn't have many markers in it unless you go there a lot and then they all become visible to you. Is there a particular part of Kinder Scout that you really do appreciate and that you think is maybe really special? There are several. Um, I really like the, the prominent narrowing of Kinder River around about um, half a mile upstream from Kinder Downfall, a place called Kinder Gates because it is rather like a gateway into the, the, uh, the well, in, in years ago, the murky depths of the plateau. Um, and it's a, it's a good guideline for people if they follow streams and found, find themselves in the jaws of these rocks. And it's been a meeting place for decades for people um, that have been guided by the fall of the landscape into this into this little narrowing. And because it's one of the very few perceptible features on the plateau, I think it's a really good spot. It's got great energy and uh, people always sling their rucksack off into the heather and have a sit down for a moment or try and wade across the stream to the other side or even pop up onto the top of the rock to see what they can see where they're going. But it's, um, it's a marked spot for most people, in fact. So I like that place. Um, I also love some of the windswept rocky tops along the northern edge which have famous names like the Boxing Glove Stones and Chinese Wall and places like that. And uh, each of the tops have a completely different feel to them. Places where you can lean over like a child and look down at these huge depths below you. And there are not many peaks uh, where, you can, where you can do this. And if you look north from Nether Redbrook, you're looking out over 
20 miles of extremely remote moorland across Bleaklow and Blackhill and up the North Pennines. So that's a great viewpoint. But it's more than viewpoints, these special places. There's some configuration about the landscape that makes you feel good. I think one of the great places, once again, largely because it's sociable and it's a known place, is the summit of Kinderloe. I really love that place because even if you're not going to go to the downfall or out to um, along the um, the Edale, the edge above Edale, you've got a summit and it's fairly prominent and it requires in the winter, as you know, quite some finding in thick mist because there's no actual path to it. It's just the the highest point on that little dome of shingle. So I love that place. I also like Edale Head Rocks, um, which is a good shelter in the winter. And I love the uh, Kinderloe End as you plunge down into Hayfield. That's a magical place. In fact, magical, there's, a, there's a, um, an old tumuli on the top of it, which is uh, Bronze Age. They've recently put a fence around it. That's a lovely spot. Full of atmosphere. And on that long ridge of Kinderloe End, you have a fabulous vista right into Kinder Ravine and right out to Sandy Hayes in the north, Ashup Head. So, gosh, if I talked about every single place, they're, they're all great. They are. Some are better than others. I have to agree. And what about the seasons? Because I, I don't know if you remember, but when I first contacted you, I, I sort of said it strikes me that you really love winter. I think when I'm looking through your book... I'm seeing pictures of snow and ice and crystal blue skies. and It is a fact that I do prefer the winter. And it's largely because, let's face it, summer on Kinder is all meadow pipits and soft summer breezes. But in the winter, Kinder behaves like the Arctic tundra. It's very bleak. It's very often icy. It has no resemblance of anything living. And these are environments that I've sought to go to all my life. Ever since I went to Antarctica in 1983, working, and, and soon after skied across Greenland, 400 miles. And all the many visits I've made to the Arctic, to the northern Canada and to Arctic Scandinavia. These places really appeal to me, and it's the absence of things that I rather like because that lends more to the imagination. And those aspects of being in the outdoors interest me as much as gaining summits or taking photographs. Being somewhere with special atmosphere is very, very important to me, and winter provides it on kinder. That's one of the things that fascinates me, is that even people who have really travelled and been to really incredible landscapes still have a real appreciation for Kinder Scout. Completely, completely true. But there's more in, 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 in what you say in that. Kinder is our hill here. It's our local hill. It's in dimension, it's small compared to the great ranges of the world. But it's here, and it's what we have. In Macclesfield, they have Shuttlingslow. 
In mid Wales they have Cadaridris, in North Wales they have Snowdon. You know, everybody has their own patch. And this is more really what you and I might call our garden. This is out the place we can get to very easily. By a stroke of wonderful luck, both of us could walk up onto this hill from home. And that kind of accessibility suddenly means that Kinder Scout is much more than being a place. It's, it's a very special emotion for aspects of our life that is needful of rest, of absence of the rest of our life where we can think things and be however we like. It's a place of freedom. Just as it was decades ago when it was a private place and people were unable to go to it. And so to respect the, the ease of which we have now to be able to roam about at, at, at will on any day of the year, if we choose, is a triumph of um, a triumph of understanding for the powers that be that both own land and create allowances on it for people to use, landowners, government, NGOs, all these things. Um, it's very important that we're able to uh, be free to roam, and it's. Hats off to all the people in the 40s and 50s that lobbied both for Kinder to be open to access for all people and eventually a national park in 1951. It's a, it's, it's, um, huge work was done in, in those decades where um, walking groups from both Manchester and Sheffield played a huge part in lobbying the, the landowners initially and eventually the government to um, create access. And there are many heroes from those days that would be regarded as such for breaking through the power of the land ownership. So, hey, having kinder is a great thing and um, it's a place I come to on many occasions, many special occasions, for many reasons. What first brought you here? I came first as a four-year-old. Um, my father used to take us um, and my sisters for a walk every Sunday morning somewhere. I lived in South Manchester and we'd go out to the western area of the Peak Lime Park and Bollington and Macclesfield Forest and eventually up to Kinder Reservoir on the Hayfield side. So really from very young, the word Hayfield was a bit of a magic name because it was such an incredible landscape. I mean, there was one place we went just above Hayfield. It's, it's actually called Farlands Fields and it's up above the reservoir on the south side. And uh, there was a signpost under this forest of fir trees and it said, Norway. And I looked at it. And I knew even from primary school that Norway was another country, a cold country. And I went, wow, this is Norway. I'm going to tell them at school. I've, I've been to Norway. <laughs> and I took this news to them and I, I said, look, I've been to Norway. I said, no, you haven't. Yes, I have. And they asked me all about it and they said, ah, oh, 
And of course, since then I've found out that it was a right-of-way notice that said no way, and someone had put an R into it. <laughs> so, as a child I was fooled, but you know, it runs deep, and it has that wonderful feeling of um, being somewhere exotic, even today. And as a child we used to lean on the wall looking at the reservoir, and we'd look up at the great western escarpment and look at the downfall, which was gothic. And we thought, what is that? Where is that? And for years and years I wanted to go up, but we'd just go back. My dad would have a pint of beer on the way home, and we'd be back home for lunchtime. So those are the early experiences there. And then when I was 12, my, my dad said, OK, we'll go to the skyline. And we walked all the way up Sandy Hayes, up there, and I got my first view along the plateau, and then I was completely hooked. After that, during my school days, I came up a lot as an individual with friends, just walking, used to catch the bus to Hayfield. But in uh, 1968, 69, I, I was in the sixth form at school, and I took a training course in Edale to join the warden service, as it was called. It was the ranger service today. It was called the warden service then. And I trained several weekends on navigational skills, first aid, history of the peak, history of kinder, history of the uh, bylaws and so on to become a, a young warden, a voluntary warden. And uh, so it was after a year's training with Gordon Miller in charge as a young man. Fantastic to have met him and known him all my life. Um, even, uh, even in those days, once I'd qualified to be a young warden, I used to come up on my motorbike 53 times a year. I went on kinder 53 times in that first year when I was a, a warden. And I just loved it, just roaming about, chatting to people, helping them navigate, helping them find their way down, rounding up sheep who were trapped on cliff ledges and slid down holes in the, um, the waterworks down below and these sorts of things. And you get to know a place in all its conditions. And hey, to a certain extent, I still do that. And when, how did your photography come into it? I would say that uh, photography came into my life as such in the mid-70s when I was doing a lot of climbing, mountaineering, and I was recording, literally recording climbs and times and events with friends, both in the peak and in the European Alps and further afield. And so I was enjoying photography with very simple cameras. Then I took a look through a, a single-lens reflex camera and the world changed then when I realised the power of um, telescope lenses, you know, a telephoto and, and um, fixed lenses and the quality of the final images in those days. So I changed gear and started photographing not just events with friends and mountain activities, but some of the detail of the landscape. But that was still only an amateur thing because I was vastly interested in the ecology of a place. It was in 81 when I, as I mentioned, mentioned went to Antarctica, that I started looking at uh, the potential of what photography really could do. And because I was in Antarctica at the time, just before the crisis in the South Atlantic with the Falkland Islands, I pretty much uniquely had photographs of South Georgia and the Falklands. And 
I sent some pictures of the whaling station on South Georgia to a paper in London. And when I was home, the first photograph I ever sold was on the front page of the Times. And it was a picture of a redundant uh, whaling vessel with huge propellers, rusting propellers, which was the essence of the Falklands crisis, the ownership of the scrap iron in Gritvikan Harbour, and I had the photograph. So that was a stroke of luck, but it opened a door. Following that, the following year, I skied across Greenland, and I took that story to National Geographic. So I went from naught to 60 in one year and had a long discussion about the story with them, which was such an exciting period. And then I realised that if I was to make a career of it, I'd have to leave my teaching career, which I was really enjoying. I was a PE teacher in Cheshire. Taught some English and geography as well, but I really enjoyed that. And I thought, this is a big move. You know, you'd go from pretty good salary in those days to zero and to be a jobbing photographer. So you have to make a mark. Well, I had this opening gambit with the Times and, and National Geographic and the story of the crossing of Greenland. And to make it more commercial, I started photographing outdoor adventure sports with clothing brands. So I worked with pretty much, in the next 10 years, pretty much everybody. Carrymore, Low Alpine, Berghaus, Hilly Hansen, everybody. And it was just a great time, great fun, using a camera outdoors all over the country and all over Europe, on mountains, on the sea, everywhere. It was just loads of fun. But behind that, the passion of my photography lay in the effect the natural world has on me. And so I had to gain an enormous portfolio of the small things I see that make up the big picture. We're sitting here now, Sarah. The reeds, the grasses, the rushes, the oak trees turning colour, the harebells we've seen earlier, and the swallows coursing about above the grass on this lovely afternoon about to go south, and to think of their journey, and to think of the danger that they will go through, and they take their last meals on the side of kinder is a wonderful thought. And so all these features create the big picture of what Kinder Scout really means. There's a great deal of emotion attached to this hill, and it belongs to a compilation of all the living things on the side of it. After that, photography eventually became more focused on travel world because I was looking abroad much more, and I travelled all over the world to many deserts to more ice caps to rainforests to the ocean and created portfolios of extraordinary materials from every country I went to and um, I now have a library of something like 300,000 images what do you do with them <laughs> what an incredible what do you do? it's it's in my memory box really because I don't feel commercial about doing something with them. I used to work with the big image libraries in London, Getty and so on, and uh, when I pick up a camera now and think, oh, I'll photograph that um, backlit spider's web with frost on it, and then I think, well, why would I do that? I have 
50 pictures of this already. <laughs> is there something different about this one? Well, I'm afraid there is. There's something about this one that's different. Mm. And just my fascination of wanting to understand it causes me to take more and more photographs. And so it's just a process of um, love for my subject and for trying to understand how the natural world fits together. And uh, I think that photography has become for me from being a commercial part of my life to a great joy where I can look at the pictures of the past reminding me of the wonder and beauty of the world. Eventually that I think will pass and being in the present and actually seeing things is the important bit and when I don't carry a camera like today I look at things and I feel that I know them and they may know me too because eventually your relationship with the natural world is one of the most important things that you will ever gain as a gift because to feel part of something, to feel part of the earth itself is probably the most useful emotional device you'll have for stability that'll help you make decisions, it'll help you understand your place and other people's place in the world, how they see, how you feel, eventually how you can help others to see and understand as well. So the camera really has been a great device of communication and that's why I'm so pleased that there are good quality cameras occurring on smartphones these days. Everybody has one. And suddenly, the natural world and the places people go becomes part of the conversation. The conversation between people. And it's about nature, it's about where you live, how you reflect upon it, who you share it with. It's all great. Photography is so good. I've heard some people describe Kinderscout and Bleaklow as featureless. So as a photographer, how do you take photos of Kinderscout and what you see here? Because when I look at your pictures, I really see Kinderscout. When I take pictures, they look a bit flat and a bit, they don't, my, my pictures don't always reflect, you know, how I, how I've seen it when I've been out there. So how do you, how do you do that? <laughs> the, whew, the um, essence of this for me is that you say, we say there's nothing to see out there. But there's a lot to feel. And trying to interpret how I feel in a visual way is actually the essence of my photography. I try and photograph what you can't see. So it's a, a strange conundrum. It's like Japanese haiku. A few phrases make up a very big picture and you end up realizing it's not the words you're reading, it's a space between the words. And so 
I think that the configuration in photography of points of focus within an image can be configured in a way that is irresistible and reveals much more than what something is. And for example, a couple of winters ago, a few winters ago, I was up on the back of Grindslow Knoll, which is a grassy mire with pools, and in the winter is transformed into a frozen mire. It's much more easy to walk on, but you are looking for the miracle of ice patterns on the pools, fronds of ice in the grasses, an exciting vista of Grindslow Knoll itself like a miniature mountain, the blue depths beyond when you drop over the edge into Edale. But on this particular day there was a lot of moisture in the air. All the grasses were getting flags of ice on them and the mires hadn't frozen properly. They were merely covered in thick wet snow and grasses were poking out of this thick wet blue snow. And the way the mire was shaped there were fingers going out into the grey and out of the corner of my eye I saw two people which for me is very often and if you search my material you'll find it's a common image of mine is to include people but the people are anonymous because the people are you so they'll never be recognized and they'll never be the subject of the picture they just happen to be there because it's you walking through this scene and so the image that I took was actually the frozen grasses pushing up through the blubbering grey mire. But because the people were in the skyline, in the mist, you were there too, which I believe concentrates your vision into the snow and the detail of the landscape around you. So that's the mechanism, and I use it a lot. Without people, it has a completely different meaning and the people that I want to be in the photographs are you. It's as simple as that. And then you have half a chance of experiencing what I experienced. Incredible. And I can, I can now that you say it, I can think of it when I'm looking at your images through the book. That's, and I hadn't even, I mean, obviously it's called the People's Mountain, yes. so of course I know that is present in there, but now you say it, there, is, there are so many images with people in. The point you put them, the point you capture their passing through the image, is crucial. There is a geometry in photography that is probably personal to everybody's viewpoint, but I believe there is an irresistible geometry available if you can recognize it and um, if you can see it everyone's a winner. I'm just uh, actually glancing up to watch this buzzard being oh, mobbed wow. by the swallows and martins. Yeah. It's really great. That's incredible. Yeah.
There are so many more buzzards in the peak these days, aren't there? See them all the time. They are. There's loads over by um, Grinzo Knoll. Yes. You can hear them. The gorgeous mewing noise. I wonder why the swallows are so disturbed, because they're never going to be the prey of a buzzard. I've seen a red kite quite recently over here as well. Nice, yeah, yeah, it? has been drifting around these northern edges. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I hope they take hold in the peak. They're spectacular. And the good thing about the kite is, of course, that it's a carrion eater. It doesn't eat live flesh. So it uh, cleans up the fields a bit. That's why it's very wrong to persecute them. I just remembered about the um, that vulture that came to visit. Oh, that was fun. And it was extraordinary that it made this visit. It was clearly lost. It was like these sea mammals that get lost in the River Thames or something. But um, <laughs> it was great fun trying to see it. Did you see it? I saw it several times. Yeah. But boy, it cost me some miles on foot. <laughs> well, the day that we went to see where it was roosting, um, we went over there because I heard from a friend that it was roosting there. So we marched off over there. And that day, it decided to come to Edale. Very same thing happened to me. <laughs> I did a seven-mile walk um, when it was actually perching in a quarry that I'd driven past. Apparently it was quite young, so it wasn't very skilled in navigating. No. But it was remarkable. It did find its way back over the channel, back to Switzerland, I think it came from. Yeah, yeah. Incredible story, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So what's the story behind your collaborative book about Kinder Scout that I'm sure many people have to hand while they're listening to this? I think that at the height of my desire to um, photograph my home patch, I made several forays into London with a portfolio of images to various publishers. And uh, they looked at the work and said, um, they said, well, they're beautiful, but um, I don't recognise any of these places. What, you know, what is this place, Kinder Scout? And I described it and showed them the photograph. And I said, but I, I, they, I don't see... I just see grass and mud. <laughs> and I don't understand it. And that was pretty much the view. It didn't have all the spectacular flags on it that... A well-known landscape has it isn't that spectacular in its form there's something different about it and it was pretty much rejected on a local level there were various people writers in the peak park wanted to collaborate with me to do this but i have a great friend in sheffield ed douglas who is a, a writer and a historian of all things to do with mountains and mountaineering. And we were out on Kinder one day, and he just said, I think I'm going to write about Kinder. Would you like to illustrate it? I said, Ed, count me in. Count me in. So that is how it occurred. And it was a wonderful collaboration for me, because Ed was not prescriptive at all about what he wanted in it. We didn't want to illustrate his words, but we wanted to resonate with his words. And the chapter titles are the only thing he gave me. Moss, grouse, hare, 
etc. Those are the chapter titles. And uh, he left me with them. And I didn't take many photographs for the book, but I edited a lot of material I had with that in mind. And if I thought there was something missing, I would go out and um, see if I could find it. But I say, see if I could find it. But this actually brings another point I'd like to talk to you about. You don't go out taking a photograph of something that you want to take a photograph of. At least I don't. I go out with an empty mind and allow the landscape to speak to me. And that's a very big difference. So without any expectations, in any weather of any kind, I just tune in. And if something appeals to me, I try and photograph the experience of having seen it, rather than go round and round it, better angle, better light, better this, better sunset, better frost. No, this was the experience that caught your eye. This is what is the right thing to photograph, because it spoke to me. And that's how all my photography of the natural world has become. Um, I must photograph a sunset, I will wait for four hours, I will calibrate it on my instruments to make sure it's going down behind that hill, the moon will rise over there, the shadows on that tree will be on the left, and so on and so on. Now, that's a different kind of artistry. And I prefer to go out and be charmed by the nature around me and have it being insistent in my memory. And so I'll photograph it. When you're out walking and maybe you've got your camera in your bag or whatever, do you feel like you get lost and just like lose track of time? I don't just lose track of time, but I lose track of my friends who have wandered <laughs> off. <laughs> yep. It's fatal taking somebody with me, mm -hmm. uh, if I'm seriously thinking of um, trying to take photographs. Because I have great friends, great trusted friends who come walking with me. They know what I'm doing, but they see me take a camera out and they start fidgeting. <laughs> because the experience they have is as follows. I may settle down five minutes, becomes 30 minutes, in fact, without me realising. And then I start to put the gear away, and they go, oh. And we set off walking, and within two minutes, I do it again for another 30 minutes. And it's not, uh, it's not fair. Jan, my wife, she uh, makes a point of asking if I'm carrying a camera before we go for a walk. <laughs> because it is antisocial. <laughs> It's because you want to get lost in your subject and the world disappears. Because after all, looking through the lens is another world. And uh, the interface of thinking about trying to capture how you feel about it does take time. You know, it's like the archer with his bow. You have to feel that moment of releasing the arrow and it's a very, very strong and intense feeling because the moment you press the trigger is infinitesimally small 
compared to the subject of what you're photographing. Carboniferous rock, uh, Triassic gravels. These are millions of years old and you're trying to capture the essence of it in a 60th of a second or something. It's insane as a concept. So it requires a sort of reverential pace of time to think it through and to observe the spe most special moment where it feels at its best. That's how it happens and that's how it, why it takes time. Do you think you would do another similar book about Kinder Scout and with more images? Because it sounds like you have a huge collection. <laughs> I would probably do I think I would I think I would like to do uh, concerning kinder I think I would like to um do another book but it would mostly be images and minimal text I'd like to say special things about certain places and certain experiences um for which I recognise that I was negligent on some aspects of the te technical aspects of photography. Having edited this one the way I did, um, I'd like to, um, for example, I've got a very strong feeling about photographing rowan berries against a dark sky in the beginning of winter, the very last of the rowan trees, and there are quite a few on Kinder that stand out and they are glorious they're special and their existence on a hillside makes the whole place special things like that so um, I want to just further investigate the intensity of what kinder means to people and so um, we had kinder the people's mountain we might have something else this time <laughs> Very intriguing. <laughs> yeah. One doesn't want to say too much about projects because um, they lose a very important part of their energy because they're held within me. And um, once you over-talk it, um, it creates an expectation. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't have confidence in um, my work to be able to tell you what might happen next because events in the world happen as you walk through it and um, yeah I'd like to do another book about kinder is the short answer I never tire of being on its slopes I never tire of sitting down with a flask of coffee I never tire of hearing the grouse I never tire of hearing the song of the wren and the meadow pipit on the high tops I never tire of the golden plover arriving in the spring. Oh, it's, the most it's exquisite. It's really special, that so sound. Kinder is all those things. So why did you choose the title and the sort of one of the main themes running through it to be the People's Mountain? I think it was a intuitive title that Ed came up with because he appreciated my style of photography um, the incredible background history of the development of access to Kinder Scout is about people the 
growth of communities around Kinder is a historic story in its own right, the development of communities in Edale compared to the isolation it used to have before the railways, before the, the mill, before the use of coal, before the pollution. All these things, it's all, it was all about the activities of people. The story of Kinder is about people. It's about the Industrial Revolution. It's about um, the story of its privacy, the, the story of its trespass, the story of desire from people to go out from their homes and up into a wild place. And so um, it's a people story. And we, talk, we talked about this a bit on the walk here um, because I was interested to know about how you've captured some of the wildlife on Kinder, which is perhaps rarely seen unless it's really quiet up here or if you go really early morning, late evening. The variety of um, food resources on Kinder Scout for wild animals is limited. We've got grass on the side, we've got heather on the top, got moss, lichens. It's quite inert in general. There is not a lot of food and there are not many species in terms of elevation that can survive on the high tops. To encounter a wild thing is a joy. It's a surprise. And that's kind of enough because to photograph it is going to be a real stroke of luck on Kinder. You can't fake it. The mountain hare, for example, is only in very small numbers on Kinder now. The best time you'll probably see it is either in the deep depths of winter when they're sheltering inside the snowdrift in a blizzard, or in the spring when they've still got some white on them and they dash out from a, beneath your feet suddenly. Apart from that, there are very few mammals on Kinder. There are voles, which create a small food source for short-eared owls. There's a couple of short-eared owls on the plateau. There used to be peregrines nesting at the downfall, but sadly no longer. Um, there are foxes in the farms, in the valleys around Kinder. There's a few badgers left in Edale. But it's not a place where you're going to go looking for wildlife particularly. But you know, I did see an amazing thing one winter on Kinder Low, where I found the footprints of a stoat in the snow right on the summit that was clearly dragging a dead rabbit that it had caught and it was a trail of the sloughing of the body of the rabbit and the paddy paws, little tiny paws of the stoat pulling this weight and the whole thing was carpeted in drips of scarlet blood. I did photograph that but it's not in the book. Oh, <laughs> I, was gonna, I think I would have remembered that one. <laughs> it's one of nature's signs and yeah, you know, the presence of animals presence of living things is the important thing here. Just to hear the 
I mentioned before, the wren in the in the heather. It's one of the m most resilient of all birds and will surprise you time and time again that it can live up there. Its plaintive little song um, is very warming um, if you think you're alone in a wilderness. There's always something there. So it's not a wildlife place, but they're there and it's all part of the, the bigger picture. It can sure make you jump. <laughs> sure can make you jump. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are there any particular challenges that you've had to kind of work through, whether it's with navigation or with helping other people or anything like that? Have you come across anything? I've made mistakes that have cost me to think about my personal vulnerability in harsh conditions, for sure. I was once running up the Ashup on the north side up from the Snake on a very, very cold winter's day. And uh, in the bottom of the Ashup there's a shooting cabin, a redundant shooting cabin, and a little tiny bridge crosses the river. But if you can cross at that point, you get a great line up the edge of Fairbrook Nays. And so I swept down off the, off the track to the bridge that crossed the river and I tripped. I tripped on the wire netting that is meant to give you better footing on the slimy bridge. I was in running shoes with studs underneath. And I flew out into space over the river, did a half somersault and I landed in the stones on the edge of the river. And I really fell heavily on my one foot. And I wasn't sure um, how it was, but it was a very, very cold day and I was running and stomping through snow, so I thought, oh, 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 and carried on. And I went up Fairbrook Nays, and I got to the top, and light was falling. I, I was in shorts, small rucksack, and I thought, oh, I'll just take my shoe off and have a look at that foot. So I took my shoe off in gathering dark, and I couldn't get it back on, because the big toe was broken and <laughs> it was I knew that I had to really think about what to do so I put my foot into it and I tied various strings and some of my bandaging from my mini first aid kit around my ankle and used this slipper to make my way down Fairbrook the quickest way and I went straight down I didn't go in any paths and pushing my foot through the, the frozen heather kept the toe on and I arrived back in the snake in pitch dark and I realised that that was a bit dumb of me to have carried on. And so that was one story that was quite dangerous but things that catch you out mostly are exuberance where you are so thrilled to be there reaching up over the snow for example that you go higher and higher and steeper and steeper and you forget that it's you're a hair's breadth now from having quite a long way to fall if you slip and so you kick steps in the snow and you think oh great I can do this chunk 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 but then suddenly the snow becomes ice and there's no more steps to kick and you can't proceed and nor can you go back <laughs> so you've got to be super careful with things like that 
But those days back in the 60s when I first started walking on Kinder, I bought a, an old uh, second-hand ice axe from um, Army Navy shop in, on Piccadilly Approach in Manchester. I was as proud of punches this, with this thing, and I took it on Kinder Low and went looking for big slopes to chunk up. And those are great experiences. They're so memorable. There was one day, actually, more recently, in fact, it was the day that I photographed the icicles behind the downfall for the book. I did go for that one because it's such a wonderful citadel of ice in the winter. I love that image. Yeah. So I got there and um, I crawled in the afternoon. I crawled in behind these organ pipes of ice and was just amazed at what a beautiful place it was. Rummaged about, got soaking wet with the dripping and did the photographs and so on. And uh, getting down was really problematic because the snow was very deep but very light. And so everything was waist deep going down these ledges. And I did arrive back in Hayfield in the dark. But when I got home, I drove home to um, the Sheffield side of Kinder. And I was emptying my rucksack and um, I found icicles in the bottom of my rucksack. And they must have broken off while I was underneath the downfall. So I made a nice gin and tonic <laughs> and I put them in. And I had this splendid drink. Fantastic. To celebrate the day. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> but I've met many people who say, is this, the, is this the way down to Edale? I'll say, well, no, this is the way down to the Snake Pass. <gasps> You know, or Hayfield. Yes, is this Hayfield? No, it's Edale. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's loads of fun. You know, it's it's not a it's not a dangerous place, and um, there are enough handrails now of good paths along the rim to have a, a really great day out. And I would really encourage people to enjoy it. Do you consider it a wild place, Sarah? It's a very interesting question because I know that you know how the word wild is abused in literature these days. Wildness is a personal feeling more than a, a place. Kinder has all the features of being a wild place, for sure, if you're not used to it, and it can momentarily feel that you're vulnerable. Um, it can surprise you with its harshness sometimes. It's a little bit small to be considered as wild in its dimensional terms, but it has the capability of feeling very wild, and it has the attributes of a wild place for sure. And I believe it will become so when the vegetation is more matured and there's less visible signs of humans up there, in, in which case even as I grow older, I must say that in the aspirations I have in mountains and mountaineering now, being on Kinder feels great. And it feels as wild as I perhaps want it to be now. Is there one photo in your book or in your home collection <laughs> that you think best represents your personal connection? with this place? Gosh, that is hard. Uh, that is hard. 
I think after all the things I've said about this place, the the overall feeling for, about Kinder for me is less is more. So inevitably, the vision I'm trying to create is going to be featureless. It's going to have quite a lot of detail information in it that will tell its story enough to recognise what we're looking at, whether it's a beautiful texture of rock or a living thing or a precipice or tiny people in a vast landscape. All these things represent in essence what Kinder is about and to do it in one photograph is a difficult job but I must say the cover says a lot because it has all those elements. It has a geometry which makes you feel connected to it. There is a male and female human in it who are clearly having a relationship by being there together in that place. They're moving towards the only object in the image, the summit of Kinderloe. The sun is fighting to get through the afternoon mist of December. It's, it's the essence, for sure, if there was one. But there are a few more, and I'm, I think that as you turn the pages and feel connected with something, then that's the one for you. And that's what I hoped the book would be, that you could turn those pages and feel part of this place. And how would you describe what makes you wild about Kinder Scout? The opportunity to step out of your life and come to a place that you feel so connected to is one of the very big aspects of Kinder. I found that I've I've come to this place in times of sadness, in times of great joy, in times of exhilarating physical activity, in times of extreme hardship at the end of a 50 mile outing. The rain has beaten on me, the cold has frozen my fingers and feet. I've hunkered down in the rocks and let this whole spirit of this place wrap around me and give you momentary shelter and succour. I've opened my flask. I've closed my flask and known that I have to return to the world. And that return down the side of the mountain to step back into your other life is an enormous act of will sometimes. But before I finish actually, Sarah, I'd like to just read a little bit that Ed discovered that I want to just make a point about. I want me a second. No, please do. So Ed wrote this little piece that he discovered from a Japanese poet. His name was Kyuyu Fukuda. And this piece completely represents what kinder is of interest for me and if you like 
What makes me wild about kinder? This is how it goes. Tall or short, near or far, some mountain watches over our native village like a tutelary deity. We spend our childhood in the shadow of our mountain and we carry it with us in memory when we grow up and leave the village. And however much our lives may change, the mountain will always be there, just as it always has been, to welcome us back to our home village.